Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. You know, Julie, we are basically our memories. We are we are a stack of cards, and each card is a memory, and they form who we are. That that alone can be kind of tricky to wrap your, your head around, and it, and it is kind of a simplification, but, but still... We are made up of memories. We're, we're all these these uh, these recollections of things that have happened, things we've learned, and they form who we are. So the idea that some of those memories are false memories is really fascinating. It's and chilling. Yeah, because it means that part of what we are is not factual. It's a uh, fabrication, and in and it's and even more to the point, it's one thing if you build some fabrication into who you are. I'm a big supporter Knowingly, of that. Knowingly, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I. Try and believe something that's not real every day, something new, you know, uh, and, uh, and build it up to them at least 50 50. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, but, but the idea that there are parts of us that we think are true mm-hmm. that are false, that's, that's the really fascinating and or chilling thing. Yeah. And, uh, what we're talking about is, uh, specifically a book called Seven Sins of Memory by Daniel Schachter. And he was on a panel that you saw at the World Science Festival covering memory and what happens with memory. Yes, uh, in New York City, uh, as it was. Yeah, it was a fascinating talk. Uh, we referred to, to some of the stuff that was brought up in our previous episode on um, on memory. Uh, mm-hmm. What did we talk about? I'm, my I can't remember. Uh, <laughs> that's what happens when yeah. you record as many podcasts as we do. That's, re- that's uh, yeah, false recall there. That's right. Uh, but... Uh, but, but, but yeah, as we've discussed before, memory is, uh, is not this perfect thing. It is a, it is a, in a, in a sense, you could say that it's, uh, it's a flawed system. It would be more accurate to just say memory is ephemeral, uh, because a lot of the flaws that are there are a part of its operating system. Like we can't remember everything, so you're going to forget things. Right. Um, and, uh, and, and memories are, we were always having to update information. So there's a potential for, uh, for disaster there. And I know that we've talked about this before that when you have a, a particularly strong memory that mm-hmm. has to do with like, say, 9-11, right? Right. You know, where were you on 9-11? That your, uh, Potential for recall is actually hindered by the fact that your amygdala is in on high alert, your emotional center of your brain. So your hippocampus is not necessarily really accurately recording things at that moment because your amygdala is kind of taking over. So that's just one example of how, um, you know, you can come away from an experience having really strong emotional feelings and saying, yes, I was there and I was wearing this shirt and so on and so forth. But, um, you're actually hamstrung in, in your ability to bring up those particular details, even if you feel certain that that's the way it went down. Right. And, uh, and it's also important to, uh, to stress that memory is a rather complex, uh, system. It's yeah. not just a situation of, Oh, here's the part of my brain that does memory and it's doing memory right now. There it goes. It remembered something and then cool. it wrote a new memory. Yeah. No, we have, uh, there are several different types of memory and they're all sort of working in a, in a chorus. And, uh, uh, you know, it, I mean, it's, it's very much like an orchestra scenario where no, no particular instrument is playing the tune, but mm-hmm. everything together creates the song that you're hearing. So you have things like episodic memory for events, semantic memory for facts and general knowledge, 
uh, priming memory for unconscious activation uh, of memories and reminders, uh, conditioning for mm-hmm. that Pavlovian experience where uh, the dog hears the, the dinner bell and starts yeah. salivating even though the meal hasn't been presented. Yeah, and um, the priming one is something we're going to talk about in a little bit too, but that one is interesting. What you were saying is you're committing sort of an unconscious memory, so you're, right. you're not even really aware of of, of this database that you're building up. So in his book, uh, Schachter lays out what he calls the seven deadly sins of memory. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the, it's a fascinating look at it. I mean, there's some bleed over between uh, one, uh, the uh, one sin and another. But uh, like the, the three first that he goes through, uh, transience. Mm-hmm. And that's just basically, I'm not going to remember uh, this fact from 10 years ago because mm-hmm. my brain forgets things over time. That's that's pretty simple. Like so when you and, and then there's going to be this uh basic absent-mindedness. And this is where you don't remember what uh, somebody told you because you were you know, involved in another task. Or you were driving and uh, you suddenly got distracted. You say you're listening to this podcast while driving and suddenly you have to, you have to deal with some sort of uh, near-wreck experience. You're maybe not hopefully re- not. Yeah, hopefully <laughs> yeah. not. But you're probably not going to commit to memory, at least not commit as strongly, right. um, whatever you're listening to on a podcast or mm-hmm. on a radio. Uh, then there, uh, there's also blocking. And this is what happens when you're like, oh, um, what was the the actor in the yeah the actor in the thing the, yeah which I do all the time. What what was the, what was that film with Val Kilmer in it where he had a sword? You know that that kind of thing. And you, you'll sit there and it'll be agonizing. You're like, yeah. what was that person's name? And someone will be like, well, look it up at IMDb. And you're like, no, I have to think no, of this myself. Yeah. yeah. And for me, I'm always like that guy that was wearing shoes. <laughs> I'm like never giving anybody good clues. And so uh, from there, he breaks out some some other things that can happen. Some of them are are, um, are sins that that basically color memory, like suggestibility, mm-hmm. uh, which is really fascinating in his own right. This is this is like, for instance, a scenario where um, the police are grilling a, a witness to a crime yeah. and trying and trying to find out like who is the uh, who they saw at the scene. Mm-hmm. And they will sometimes sometimes even kind of unconsciously hint that this is the person you should pick. So it's sort of like leading the witness. Yeah, You've seen that in the courtroom before where it's like that line of questioning is really putting that idea in your head. Yeah. Like if I was to say. Uh, so Julie, your favorite food is pizza, right? Well, yes, it is actually. Yeah. So, I mean, that's kind of a horrible example, but, but I'm, I'm leading <laughs> you, you know, it's like the, the answer is in the question. The answer that I want is in the question that I'm yeah. asking. Julie, you like cheese. Yeah. You like sauce. Do I ever? And then there's also just persistence, uh, which is, uh, for instance, a traumatic memory that keeps showing up. Mm-hmm. But the one that uh, we're going to discuss in, in, in detail today is misattribution. Th- this is uh, particularly fascinating. This, this is like memory distortion on steroids. Or can be. Sometimes it can be pretty simple, like a day-to-day thing. There's a predictability factor that we rely on when we're bringing up a memory, right? When we're taking it out of the drawer. Mm -hmm. And misattribution seems to fall prey to our need to fit details into a framework, right? Right. Uh, Even if the pieces don't fit, Mm -hmm. uh, there's a kind of familiarity that exists, right? Because you, you have some of the facts right, you have some of the facts wrong, but your mind wants to try to square that. And, um, so, you know, even though it, it's, it could be wrong, it feels right to you. Right. Because on some level, you're familiar with some of the details. And there are a bunch of examples of what misattribution can be. Yeah, like one of the most uh, most obvious ones would be an example of where you try and remember, um, like, where you met somebody or mm-hmm. a year and you end up – the memory is, is fine, uh, except that there's a detail wrong in it uh, or a couple of details wrong in it. It's basically gotten, right. gotten a little mixed up. That your order has been slightly mixed up from the kitchen. They, yeah. you, they, br- they bring you the burger you ordered, but they give you fries instead of the side salad that you requested. Right, right. So you accurately recall something, but you might map it to the, ra- the wrong place or time. Right. Or to the wrong person. 
And then you've got an imagined event that you yeah. ascribe to a reality, which yeah, I think is this, fascinating. Yeah, this is really fascinating, where we end up remembering something as fact, like we remembering something as action mm-hmm. that we merely imagined or thought about doing. And the great example of this is something that happens to me way too often, and that is where I'll leave the house and I'll actually lock the door, but then I'll check it again, double sh- sure that I locked it, or sometimes walk to the car and then walk back and then check that I locked it again, uh, which is just unexcusable to come back for the third time. Yeah. But it's but I can't I can't remember if I thought about locking it or I did lock it. The same with uh, things like blowing out the candle in the bathroom or turning off a burner. These are vital things we need yeah. to do, and we're making the middle note, do it, do it, do it. But then after the fact, we can't remember, did I just think about doing that or did I actually do it? Yeah, did I imagine myself doing it? And um, if you go on the World Science Festival site, you'll actually see a clip of this example. And in the example, it's not necessarily the person imagining themselves uh, doing something or himself doing something. But it's this clip of this guy talking about how for many years he harbored this resentment against his cousin for ruining his eighth birthday party by swinging the bat at the pinata and getting oh, yeah. all the candy out. So he sees his cousin uh, at some point, you know, a couple of years ago, he's now an adult. And he says, remember that time that you completely ruined my eighth birthday party? And his cousin says, what are you talking about? I was away at summer camp at your eighth mm-hmm. birthday party. And he said that he immediately realized that he had concocted this this memory. And it just, just like that, he thought, oh, my that's completely right. This he was at summer camp, right? And uh, I think that's fascinating. And, and I know that there are examples for myself that you know I've done the same thing, um, and for whatever reason, our minds kind of conjure these these alternate realities for yeah. us. These are these are basically um, binding errors, um, binding failures, even in memory binding. Mm-hmm. And and again, the, the, you basically have two kinds. Um, I mean, memory binding is the, is the gluing together of various components of an experience into a, a whole. Mm-hmm. It is uh, the bringing together of the, the different, um, the side, the main dish, the garnish, and the condiments into the complete order. Right. And in a binding failure, the, the time that the event occurs at, the action or the object, uh, et cetera, is not bound to the particular time and place. And again, it can, it can deal with, with real events and just sort of mix them around or mm-hmm. imagined or just purely thought about events. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's really interesting that you'd have to have that sort of sequential binding in your head. Otherwise, things kind of go awry if you don't have that glue in place. Yeah. In the book, uh, Schachter describes an experiment where younger and older adults were shown one object and then asked to imagine a second object. Mm-hmm. All right. So in the, the first case, they had them imagine, say, a magnifying glass. So that's easy to imagine. You know, it's like a stick with a round thing at the top. Yeah. That you look through to see. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then they imagined that they saw that. They actually saw a magnifying glass. Okay. There it is. So the actual object was yes. in front of them. And then they imagined a lollipop. And a lollipop is also a stick with a round thing at the top, but with an entirely different purpose. Yeah. Um, then they also did a dissimilar thing where it was like a, a screwdriver and a, and a coat hanger. Mm-hmm. And uh, when they looked at, at the the results, they found that uh, that older adults were more likely to say they'd actually seen the lolly. Which, uh, the lolly. Yeah. But, but, like but they, they, they had a number of test uh, uh, subjects that were, that actually said, yeah, I saw the, the lolly. You showed it to me. Yeah. So uh, examples of, of the thing we imagine and the thing we perceived becoming confused, uh, which is more, it's more likely when there is some sort of semantic link between the two. 
Yeah, yeah. Yes. Well, and I, again, there's that familiarity, right? It's a mm-hmm. context and it gives a sort of fire to your convictions. And you do see that more in the elderly who uh, rely on that sense of familiarity to corroborate their memories and they have a harder time recalling specific recollections. Right. Uh, you also see this uh, sometimes uh, like the mis, uh, the misattribution of s- the source of a memory. Mm-hmm. And th- th- this may have happened to a number of you where you say you hear something from a friend and then you misremember it as being something you saw on the news, mm-hmm. uh, which can get you into some trouble sometime if you're, you know, you're at a dinner party and you're like, oh, yeah, su- such and such. And then people were like, I don't think that's right. I think you, you, you may have got that wrong. You're like, no, I saw that on Fox News. It must be true. Well, see, I was thinking about that and I was thinking that is why language is so flawed for us. And of course, it's great because it's what we have to communicate with each other uh, with. But I was thinking, Here's here's a good example of something like the the healthcare bill in the United States. This conversation began to happen around it, and there are all sorts of bits of information uh, information that's unleashed, and and some of that has been misremembered intentionally or not. Mm-hmm. And you have these conversations going on, and it's being processed by the public at large, and then mass confusion ensues. And you're, you're talking about things like the death panels and all that. Yeah, which, which yeah. Really have any 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 uh, origin in fact, but was more uh, about people coloring the debate with uh, exaggerated ideas. Or just misconstruing information. Mm-hmm. And maybe they, w- they weren't trying to do that intentionally, but it, I think it's fascinating that you have this black and white document that exists. Mm-hmm. And yet the reality that's been created around it or, or had been created around it, I guess, depending on how you look at it, uh, is quite different from what the actual document is. And a lot of this, I think, again, has this, there's that suggestibility factor. Uh-huh. And, um, this, uh, also this, the, the wrong source, right? Because right. you could sit around in a dinner party and m- mistake what someone might say at the table for fact that was, you know, reported Fox News or NBC. And so it just really muddles <laughs> the yeah. conversations that we have and the reality of, of, of um, of what we're all looking at, you know? Yeah. Another, another possibility is that if you're watching, say, a 24 hour news show and you don't really, you end up misremembering whether you heard something on an opinion based section or, mm-hmm. um, a, a more a factual news report. Mm-hmm. Um, well, it's the same can go with a, you know, a newspaper. Did you get it on the opinion page or from the, uh, like the AP stories? Right. Or a blog, right? Is, right, is right. that, it's at a blog that's, uh, been researched and documented or is it just someone's blog that says, I hate Mondays? Right. <laughs> well, uh, like in my own research for articles here at How Stuff Works, like sometimes I'll find myself in a situation where I'm recalling a fact from the research I've done, and I have to, I, I try to steer away from even looking at sources that I that could potentially be problematic, mm-hmm. because ideally, like I've heard, like some people can argue that say a Wikipedia article is a good starting place for legitimate research, because even though you you have to cast doubt on the article itself, since mm-hmm. anybody can update it, and and quality varies sometimes like the Colbert nation. Yeah. Right. right. And, and quality varies significantly. There's some fine Wikipedia articles out there, but then there are some that are just really incorrect, mm-hmm. really flawed or poorly written. So, uh, some people say start there, then, you know, use that as a jumping off place for real research. But the problem there, uh, is that you'll run across other facts. You'll start putting together an article or something, and then you'll put something in and you'll misremember, uh, the source. Mm-hmm. So something you ended up, Thinking is from, say, this New York Times article or something published in a peer-reviewed journal is actually from the Wikipedia article or a blog referring to one of the uh, uh, the primary sources, and uh, and it just gets con- confusing. 
So It's a topsy-turvy yeah. world. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to look at a little something called a memory conjunction error. And how uh, you and I could possibly be ripping off things without us even knowing we're doing it. This podcast is brought to you by Intel, the sponsors of Tomorrow, and the Discovery Channel. At Intel, we believe curiosity is the spark which drives innovation. Join us at curiosity.com and explore the answers to life's questions. And we're back. So, memory conjunction error. Uh, this is another uh, fascinating um, aspect of misattribution, um, where two memories are combined into one. Mm-hmm. Generally, this is going to revolve around words and faces. And uh, and w- with words especially, it's um, it's important that there's some sort of semantic link there. Is that the example of varnish and spaniel? And yes. sometimes people mistake that for Spanish, right? Yeah. They've yeah. seen or they've seen that sort of sequence and they think, oh, I heard the word Spanish. Yeah, there's less of a semantic link there, but more of a like a linguistic link, I guess, okay. just the sound of the words, you know, like you're you're, you're probably not going to have a, a memory conjunction error involving like two things that are completely different. Mm-hmm. But say you didn't know anything about rap and you were introduced because uh, it will it'll actually like happen with you know people you're introduced to. Like if you're in a in some sort of line of work or just in your social life, find yourself meeting a lot of new people. Mm-hmm. You may have a memory conjunction error um, when you try to recall information about them later. Like say you're introduced to Snoop Dogg and Lil Wayne. Both rappers. Okay. And if you weren't familiar with them, you might re- in- instead remember that you met one person, like a uh, named like Lil Dog or, uh, or Lil or Snoop, Wayne or Lil No Wait Lil No Wayne. Lil Snoop. You, you did it correctly. Yeah. I know. Or Lil Snoop. Lil or Snoop. Snoop That's Wayne or something. Say. Yeah. So um, and but then even crazier is it can occur with faces where you'll meet two people with similar faces, mm-hmm. and then you'll commit to memory a face that is um a combination of the two, which is. So great. Yeah. And so like that your mind would construct this third person out of the two people. Like a lot of what we're talking about with memory, it does raise some problematic questions when the memory is important. Because it's one thing if you just met some people at a party and then you get their names mixed up. Right. Or, you know, it's it's some piddling thing, you know, where you you accidentally say that you're, you know, the source of uh, some little news bit was uh, New York Times when it was really uh, Washington Post or something. But when people's lives are on the line, when you have uh, criminal investigations and and witness uh, testimonies. Yeah. And one of the best examples of this is Donald Thompson, who is a memory researcher himself. Yeah. Australian uh, guy. And, uh, he was arrested one morning in connection with this, uh, this horrible, brutal rape, brutal rape, um, horrible assault on this lady who said, this is the guy. He was there. This is the one. Arrest him. She was so sure of it that police were actually able to track him down by his, the way he looked. Right. Like she right. had this idea of him cemented in her mind. Yeah. And so they brought him in. But, but the thing is, Donald Thompson had this just airtight alibi because he would at the time of the attack, he was doing a live TV interview. And, I, and ironically enough, he was talking about the um, the the ephemeral nature of memory and, mm-hmm. and, and about false memories uh, while this was going on. But the person was like, no, that's him. This is the guy. That's right. So while while she was being attacked, while she was being raped, she was that that television program was on and she actually encoded his face onto the rapist's face. Yeah, it was a misattribution of of the face to the wrong context mm-hmm. or the wrong context to the, the right face. Right. Which. Uh, I mean, it's such a simple example of uh, of this, uh, but but just such a, a telling one. The idea that she saw the face on the TV 
And then that becomes the face fixed in the memory of the event. Well, and then she had mentioned, though, that the, the big takeaway from this is that eyewitness testimony is just egregiously flawed. Mm-hmm. In the 1980s, more than 75,000 criminal trials per year were decided on the basis of eyewitness testimony. This is from Daniel Schrachter, um, who wrote about this in several different articles. Uh, and then another point that he likes to make is that in an analysis of 40 cases in which DNA exonerated wrongfully imprisoned people, 36 of them were put in the clinker because of eyewitness testimony. So it's really one of those things you need to back up and actually look at the system and how it's conducted um, eyewitness testimony. Mm-hmm. And um, and in fact, Janet Reno, I believe, tried to reform this system and has to a certain degree. And most police departments now, when they do lineups, they don't necessarily bring everybody in the room. Right. Uh, and the reason is, is because even though you could have the, say someone, um, stole your wallet, even, even if you had the thief in that lineup, there could be someone that looked a lot like that thief and your mind is misremembering and then, uh, fingering the other person who is innocent. Because they look like the thief. Yeah. So now they're starting to take people in one at a time so that your mind doesn't get too confused and you can actually sort of ferret out, you know, yes or no, is this the person that did it? But even then, as we've discussed, the memory memory in the, is, is complex and flawed enough as it is without the uh, – uh, without the, the the investigation process making it even worse. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yet you cannot do away with, with uh, this, you know, wholesale because this is the person, you know, to which this act was – uh, th- this act happened to. Right. So <laughs> you've got to have some sort of credence in those details that some of that is going to be true. There's a, another story that, um, that Schachter brings up in his book that, that I found particularly fascinating. And this uh, involves a, um, British photographer, uh, who they just referred to by the initials MR. And this is the early nineties, uh, photographer, uh, you know, deals with, with a lot of faces in, in his time. And he's, mm-hmm. he's uh, I, I believe it was in London. He's, you know, a lot of crowds around. And uh, he suddenly noticed that he started seeing some more celebrities than usual. You know, and you live in any big city or even a, you know, small, smaller cities. So occasionally you're going to see somebody and you're like, oh, is that, is that uh, Brad Pitt? Is that, uh, you know, William Shatner? Ted I don't know. Turner for Ted us. Turner. Yeah. Yeah. Bonnie's, uh, my, my wife, uh, Bonnie, her dad looks kind of like Ted Turner. Um, so he has been mistaken for Ted Turner on, on a few occasions where people are like, I think they've actually come up and asked him before. That's awesome. Uh, I hope he runs with that. Yeah. <laughs> he just pretends like he always has a bison burger in his hand. Yeah. 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 But, but this guy, so, you know, he was noticing it a little more often than is, than is normal. Mm-hmm. Cause it's one thing to be like, Oh, well, I think I saw that actor on, uh, on the tube this morning. Uh, no, he was, he was seeing it regularly and he, he'd be out with his wife and he would, he would be like, is that who I think it is over there? And she would like be like, no, I don't think that's anybody. I, you know, I think you're mistaken. Yeah. And he got so strong that he was, he would be, to feel compelled to go and approach these people and, and be like, you're, you know, you're Brad Pitt or you're, uh, you, know, you know, whoever. And they would look at him like he was crazy. So he went to the doctor and he found out that he had multiple sclerosis, uh, which um, had compromised his frontal lobe, yeah. which is involved in the consolidation of information from short term to long term memory, as well as like spatial navigation. When you see a face that looks sort of familiar, we all have this happen, you know, where at first glance it looks like someone we know or a famous person and then we realize it's not. So when you see the face, there's a part of the brain that identifies it as a familiar face. Yeah, like your pattern recognition right. software. Yeah. And then but there's another section that has all the IDs and all the biographical information mm-hmm. that kind of fact checks the initial report mm-hmm. 
Well, so one part says, hey, I think that's Brad Pitt over there. And the other part of your brain says, no, that's not Brad Pitt because he actually looks a little different and he would never dress like that. You know, things, right, things, right. things like that. In this uh, British photographer, MR, uh, the frontal lobe damage had made it so that his brain didn't sufficiently scrutinize the signals that were generated by the weakly activated facial recognition system in his brain. So was it the fact checker that was down? Yeah. yeah, yeah. But, or basically the, the connection between the two. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the signals uh, were it's kind of like in uh, in like a movie where one person is telling the other what to say through mm-hmm. like a radio headset. And the signal gets distorted. Right. So the, the communication was. And started. hilarity ensues. And hilarity ensues. Or in this case, um, not, not exactly hilarity. No, but, no, no. Yeah. But I do think it's interesting that his, his database, his backup database was celebrities, you yeah. know, as a photographer. Yeah. Um, well, I think, and also, I mean, celebrity is, they're the modern deities of our pop culture. So, right. so even though we don't know, like Madonna, we have seen so many f- images of her. And we have biographical information. And we have biographical information. So it's almost as if we do know her, even though we don't have personal knowledge of her. Yeah. Um, and it's just this uh, tale is just so fascinating, too, because it underlines just how complex memory is. Mm-hmm. There are multiple systems going on in something as simple as saying, hey, is that who I think it is? Oh, no, it's not. Right. And that you could have just some of the some of the wiring just not quite right. And then all of a sudden you're seeing Madge everywhere. Yeah. So uh, let's get to uh, plagiarism and uh, yeah. crypto amnesia. This yep. is pretty fascinating and scary, especially for us since we work uh, in a field uh, composed of research and writing. Well, and there's so much research that we're filtering on a day-to-day basis. That, right. Yeah. Um, I first became aware of it when we were talking about the music podcast. Uh, not excuse me, not music, but dreaming and oh, yes. you know what what can happen in our dreams. And Paul McCartney, when he wrote yesterday, he he wrote it in a dream, woke up, and immediately went to the piano. And he was fearful that he had actually ripped that off, which is called cryptom- cryptomnesia. Huh, yeah. There's a, there's a great scene in the... Um, he hadn't, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, not in this. Maybe he had accessed another world through his dreams and stolen it there. From a parallel universe. Yeah, yeah. it's possible. Parallel Paul. There's a, there's a great example of this in uh, the HBO series Treme. That um, takes place in New Orleans, deals yeah. with the aftermath of Katrina, where there's a... Um, uh, a violinist and uh she's trying to write her first song and she she works really hard on this and she's so proud of it when she finishes mm-hmm. it and she plays it for a couple of friends and they're like oh that that sounds good and they they don't have the heart to break it to her that she just uh played a bob dylan song uh see and and so that's exactly what ends up happening with people a uh, crypto amnesia is when we produce from memory another person's writings writings or ideas mm-hmm. and we and we end up uh, having a memory misattribution going on in that we don't remember that it was this other person's ideas. We, we idea, we think it's our own. We think it's a novel thought. And you can see this just at the, the very basic levels. If you've ever been in a meeting mm-hmm. and you've said something or you've heard someone else say something and then like, you know, two, five minutes later, someone else says, Hey, I've got this idea. And they say the exact same thing. It uh-huh. happens all the time. I'm sure I've done that. I'm sure I've ripped off people ideas and meeting before you just don't even know that you're doing it right because you're processing this as new information to you um yeah unintentional plagiarism has been examined in a number of studies and there there was one where people were asked to generate uh, examples of uh, particular categories of items like a species of bird and they were found that uh, without realizing uh, people plagiarized each other about four percent of the time Mm -hmm. and subsequent studies using more uh, like natural procedures have found uh, even higher rates like uh, sometimes as much as 27 percent yeah yeah 
Yeah. And it involves that thing that we talked about before, which is called priming. And that's the unconscious influence of memory, right? Mm -hmm. Your brain activates certain words or ideas and and just kind of files them away. And then when you go to create something novel concerning that topic, then, then you're, you know, unconsciously bringing up those exact words. And we've seen this time and time again in history. In fact, uh, Carl Jung was looking through some of Nietzsche's writings. Mm And found a couple of paragraphs that were completely ripped off. He probably didn't even know it from another person. Uh, they were, they're stunningly some, uh, familiar and similar to each other that, uh, you know, there are times that people will take whole passages that they don't even realize that they've committed to memory and bring them up. Which is, you know, and it's sort of one of those things you're like, well, why can't I have that sort of uh, memory recall when I want it and not yeah. when I want it? When not I don't when it's want gonna it. gonna actually uh, you know, hurt my career. Or something. Right, right. And I've encountered that too in like in uh, in newspapers. Uh, I remember one incident where a, a writer ended up uh, being accused of plagiarism, and and at the time I was kind of like, wow, how, why did they they do this? Because this person would never do do this, you know? Mm-hmm. Because it's as a writer. You don't, I mean, it's the worst thing that could happen pretty much right. as far as your, your actual career performance because done intentionally, it's like the lowest, laziest thing. Right. But, uh, as, as this really underlines, it, it's not always an intentional act. It, uh, there, sometimes it's just about the flawed nature of memory that we end up recalling, um, a source word for word, uh, when we, when, and think that those are our words on the page. Yeah. Uh, they had another example in the seven sins, um, or Schachter did. And it was of George Daniels who wrote science in American society. And it was, mm-hmm. it was doing really well. It got released and, you know, great reviews. And, and then as he was sort of going through it, he realized that he had quoted directly from a number of sources, not ever meaning to thinking that those were his, complete novel thoughts and he was completely horrified and in fact came out and said whoa i didn't realize that you know these sources had gotten in my brain to the extent that i was actually plagiarizing yeah which i believe him because you know i think that he was you know he had that moment of oh let me look back at my my book that i created and then all of a sudden that false the falsity of that memory started to fall away yeah for our final section here, one of the things that, that really fascinated me uh, reading about misattribution is, like we, we talked about before, it's the idea that these these memories form who we are. And the, the idea that there could be a false memory in there making us up, composing who we are, and we don't realize that it's false. Mm-hmm. But here's an even crazier idea. Then imagine we could scan the brain, and by scanning the brain, tell if a memory is false or not, even if we have no idea. And this is, it sounds very sci-fi, but it is in fact something that we can do and has been done. So in 1996, Schachter actually scanned some brains of some test subjects. Just for fun. Yeah, just for fun. No, while they were reciting list of words, Mm -hmm. uh, and they were uh, correctly and falsely recalling some of the words uh, in the list. And he reported that while the scans were very similar, there were, quote, tantalizing hints of difference. Tantalizing. Yeah. There have been a number of studies uh, since then uh, looking into exactly what's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and the idea is that there's, you know, there's that, that fact checking process similar to the whole, I see the face and then another section of the brain determines whether or not that, that familiar face is actually who we think it, think it is. Yeah. Some more things are going on. So the idea is there's something in that activity, in that fact checking that can be scanned. And therefore, there'd be some sort of little telltale sign that, that this memory that you just recalled is flawed. Mm hmm. 
So there have been a number of additional studies uh, since then. And looking at them, you'll see the results fall on both sides. But a number of them do point to the idea that there is a slight difference uh, occurring when a false memory is is brought to mind as mm-hmm. opposed to a true memory. Uh, because you can see the, um, the basically the, the fact-checking section of the, of the brain is weaker in false memories. Okay. Yeah. Schachter says this too, which I think is interesting. Um, beyond an exercise in scientific fortune-telling, these studies managed to trace some of the roots of transience to the split-second encoding operations that take place during the birth of a memory. Mm-hmm. What happens in frontal and temporal regions during those critical moments determines, at least in part, whether an experience will be rem- remembered for a lifetime or drop into the oblivion of the forgotten which I think is fascinating that you can take these scans and you can see a false memory at work. Yeah, and just the mere fact that it's like the the the, the illusion of a false memory mm-hmm. becomes a part of the illusion of who we are, and then the machine can see through the self-believing illusion. I, I, it's just mind-blowing to me. I think so, too. And I think that, that we should end the podcast by, by uh, doing a little exercise. And this was actually done on the panel that you attended, yes. right? Mm-hmm. And this is, this is uh, a little test to see how good your memory is. And this is the one that they used at the World Science Festival. It's a word list. And I'm, I'm going to repeat some words. And uh, I just want you guys to, to listen for a moment and really think about them. Here's the word list. Candy. Sour. Sugar. Bitter. Good, taste, tooth, nice, honey, soda, chocolate, heart, cake, eat, pie. Okay. Okay. This is the list. And this list, of course, is bringing up a bunch of ideas for you, right? Mm -hmm. There are some associations for you. um, And what... There's a semantic link uh, going on. Yeah, there's here. a semantic yep. link. There's there's a story that your idea is conjuring right now. And Schachter actually does this to the audience. And then he reads out some of the words to test whether or not people have actually uh, remembered or misremembered something on that list. Now, that's a long list, but yeah. it's interesting because there could be a suggestibility factor here, right? Right. Okay. So here's the test. How about the word taste? Was the word taste on that list? Yes. Yes. Okay, you're right. Correct. Good. What about the word point? No. Correct. Dissimilar from everything on the list. Yeah, yeah. That just kind of stands out, doesn't it? Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, We got a couple more words. What about the word sweet? Yes. No, it was not. See, but, but the semantic link is there. I just assume sweet because everything else was right. was revolving around right, it. Right, right. Yeah. But you, you can't help it, right? Because your your brain is already making that framework and that connection, that familiarity that we talked about mm-hmm. that makes us feel certain about the decisions or the memories that come up for us. Right. So, I don't know. Uh, I would love to hear from, from the audience about whether or not um, they also thought that sweet was part of that list. Because in the audience, I think the majority of people yeah, were they, like, they, oh, yeah, yes, We were all sweet. like, yeah, yeah, totally. We heard that. Yeah. And maybe some people were, you know, hip to what he was doing and they were. Well, yeah, the panelists were all like, or they people, all had that yeah. Cheshire cat smile. Or they had their, their, their iPad out and they were like jotting them down as they, they were said, which is cheating. But. Uh, <laughs> For the record. Yeah. 
But uh, hey, if any of you have any uh, any comments on uh, on this, if you have uh, some experiences with false memory you'd like to share, uh, be they simple uh, things that occur every day, or if you have some sort of phenomenal star- story you'd like uh, to tell us, uh, we'd love to hear about it. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter. We are Blow the Mind on both of those. And you can also drop us an email at blowthemind at howstuffworks.com. Be sure to check out our new video podcast, Stuff from the Future. Join HowStuffWorks staff as we explore the most promising and perplexing possibilities of tomorrow. 